Hello and welcome to our 15th edition of Crib Wolf Talks. My name is Lino Farah and the host of today's episode. Just an FYI, we have some very good news to share with you. Crib Wolf Talks has been in discussion with Kojiko. It looks like we may be a member of the Kojiko community channel starting this September. A Kojiko subscriber will be able to tune in via their cable network and view all of our upcoming webcasts. Our podcast can still be heard by going to cribwolftalks.com or on our Spotify or on iHeartRadio. All of our webcasts will also be posted on our website, cribwolftalks.com, and on social platforms such as YouTube and, of course, Kojiko Community Channel starting this September. Okay, so today's show. In Canada, there has been resounding discussion on the historical devastation from the residential schools of our Indigenous people. To provide context, I wish to provide our listeners with a snapshot of the Indian residential school system. In Canada, the Indian residential school system was a network of boarding schools for Indigenous peoples. Attendance was mandatory from 1984 to 1947. In 1920, under the Indian Act, it became mandatory for every Indigenous child to attend a residential school and illegal for them to attend any other educational institution. The network was funded by the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs and administered by Christian churches. The school system was created to isolate Indigenous children from the influence of their own native culture and religion in order to assimilate them into the dominant Canadian culture. The term residential schools referred to an extensive school system set up by the Canadian government and administered by churches that had the nominal objective of educating Indigenous children but also the more damaging and equally explicit objectives of indoctrinating them into Euro-Canadian and Christian ways of living and assimilating them into mainstream white Canadian society. The purpose of residential schools was to eliminate all aspects of the Indigenous culture, depriving them of their ancestral languages. Students had their hair cut short, they were dressed in uniforms, they were often given numbers, and their days were strictly regimented by timetables. Boys and girls were kept separate, and even siblings rarely interacted, further weakening family ties. Abuse at the schools was widespread. Emotional and psychological abuse was constant, physical abuse was metered out as punishment, and sexual abuse was also common. These abuses, along with overcrowding, poor sanitation, and severely inadequate food and health care resulted in a shockingly high death toll. In 1907, government medical inspector P.H. Bryce reported that 24% of previously healthy indigenous children across Canada were dying in residential schools. This figure doesn't include children who died at home, where they were frequently sent when critically ill. Bryce reported that anywhere from 47% on a reserve in Alberta to 75% a boarding school in Saskatchewan, of students discharged from residential schools who die shortly after returning from home. Ongoing efforts since 2021 have identified thousands of probable unmarked graves on the grounds of former residential schools, though no human remains have yet to be exhumed. While religious communities issued their apologies for their respective roles in the residential school system in the late 1980s and early 1990s, On June 11, 2008, Prime Minister Stephen Harper offered the first public apology on behalf of Government of Canada and the leaders of other federal parties. In June 2008, 
the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, referred to as a TRC, was established to uncover the truth about the schools. The Pope's visit to Maskawasis in Alberta, July 2022, is part of a six-day penitential pilgrimage. To reiterate the apologies of the Catholic Church for its role in administering many of the residential schools and to express sorrow, healing, and reconciliation between the Catholic Church and Indigenous peoples. The first day of Pope Francis' penitential pilgrimage began with a heartfelt apology delivered at the site of one of Canada's largest residential schools and ended eight hours later with blessings and songs and an intimate service in the only designated Indigenous church in Canada. As a society, we make the connection of individuals with disabilities, physical, developmental, or intellectual, as being a vulnerable population. But are we doing a disservice by also including Indigenous peoples? Are we adding another label that further stigmatizes? During our past episodes, Cripple Talk's core focus has been on persons with disabilities. For example, a day in the life of a person with disabilities, engaging the community, IT training, the housing crisis, affordable and supportive housing, providing a person-centered housing solution. You get it, where I'm going with this. So some basic statistics. Over 1 billion people are estimated to experience disability. This corresponds to about 15% of the world's population. The World Health Organization states that disability refers to the interaction between individuals with a health condition, for example, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, and mental illness, and personal and environmental factors, such as the negative attitudes, inaccessible transportation in public buildings, and limited social supports. The number of people experiencing disability is increasing due to a rise in chronic health conditions and population aging. Disability is a human rights issue with people with disability being subject to multiple violations of of their rights, including acts of violence, abuse, prejudice, and disrespect because of their disability, which intersects with other forms of discrimination based on age and gender, among other factors. People with disability also face barriers, stigmatization, and discrimination when accessing health and health-related services and strategies. Disability is a developmental priority because of its higher prevalence in lower-income countries and because disability and poverty reinforce and perpetuate one another. So why do we refer to persons with disabilities as the most vulnerable? There are definitions set in place to back this terminology. However, definitions used in one area, be it medical, political, or other, have social implications in all other areas. When a politician, for example, uses the phrase most vulnerable in a bill or a speech, for example, we must consider how those words trickle down and impact how others see persons with a disability. Why are persons with disabilities considered the most vulnerable? This is not a rhetorical question. There are tangible answers. For example, some have higher medical needs than others, and that makes it more difficult to experience the world as someone else might. Without the proper medication or supplies, their lives may actually be at risk. Some may not be as educated as those without disabilities, which impacts information intake and job prospects. Some are unemployed, underemployed, or struggle to keep work, 
In fact, persons with developmental disabilities are more than twice as likely to experience unemployment than people without disabilities. The negative impact access to good health and housing, which impacts access to medication and supplies that keep us healthy. In other words, people with disabilities are vulnerable because there is still a systemic cycle of vulnerability. Individuals with disabilities resoundingly state, we're not vulnerable because of our disabilities, but by the treatment from society. Or I don't want pity, just give me a job, work with me, is all I ask. So sick of the, they're so sick of the discrimination. Are we adding a stigma, a label, or being un- unintentionally disrespectful and discriminatory when we use the phrase vulnerable population? Pretty bold, this is a pretty bold topic that we'll probably take a deeper dive into and on, on another episode of Cribble Talks. One may simply and honestly ask, were there no advocates to raise a hand and say, stop, this isn't the way we treat our citizens? Was society so very blind that did not realize that these acts of removing children from their tribes, from their families, attempting to assimilate them into the white man's world, taking away their rights, etc., was morally wrong? Where were their rights? Did they not have any rights? So let's talk about rights and shift gears back to persons with disabilities. What are the rights of a person with disabilities? Exactly the same as you and I. We're all equal. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom is a part of the Canadian Constitution, a set of laws containing the basic rules about how our country operates. Section 15 of the Charter makes it clear that every individual in Canada, regardless of race, religion, national or ethnic origin, color, sex, age, or physical or mental disability, is to be considered equal. This means that governments must now discriminate on any of those grounds in its laws or programs. Some of these rights include, but are not limited to, the right to live independent, active, and full lives, the right to an adequate income or wage, substantial enough to provide food, clothing, and shelter, and the other necessities of life, the right to accessible, integrated, convenient, supportive, and affordable housing, the right to training and employment without prejudice or stereotype, the right to accessible transportation and freedom of movement, the right to bear or adopt and raise children and have a family. Everyone should be treated as an equal. We want to live a sustainable, harmonious life, living in an environment that supports personal choice and growth, to be included within our community, to be employed, to be the driver of our own lives. You know, a statement by, made by David Petko during the Crip of Talks episode number four with Christian's Horizons has really stayed with me. His statement was that we all have a right to accomplish our goals, to do what is meaningful for that individual, and to belonging to a community where one's God-given gifts are valued and respected. Well said, David. We are designed to be in a relationship, in a relationship with our community around us to give us and receive from that community. They must be the driver of their own lives. We all have an intrinsic worth, value, and want to be respected, to have a choice and a voice. Maybe they need a little help, but when people are really listening to that voice 
and act, people soar in their community. They develop relationships, which leads to great success. As with the residential schools of our indigenous peoples, we need to be able to exercise these rights. But what happens when that voice cannot be uttered? The voice like a little bird is too quiet for anyone to hear. We need to be advocates for those that cannot fully help themselves. We'll always support and advocate for a nurturing society that cares for our persons with any form of disability. We must provide the means for a loving and safe place to call home. We must provide the support services needed. We must offer training to allow all persons the right to gainful employment in the field of their choice. Overarchingly, we must ensure a community-centric and inclusive environment to allow all persons to experience personal growth and allow their unique abilities to shine. Please join us by being the advocate for one person this week that needs your help. One small act of kindness can react incredible rewards for that person. And as an added bonus, for you too. We must help those that cannot help themselves. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode of Crib of Talks. I'm looking forward to next month's episode, which will be an in-studio webcast and my discussion with a very interesting person named Sandra. Be sure to tune in. If you missed any of our 15 episodes, visit cribwolftalks.com. Be safe and remember, help those who cannot help themselves. Mm-hmm.